Cardology is now presented by Sardine, and I couldn't be more excited. You'll get to meet their founder, Soups, and some of the team later this quarter, and you'll hear a bit more about why they've caught the attention of some of the smartest fraud leaders I know throughout crypto, fintech, financial services, and e-commerce. Thanks again to Sardine for supporting this episode of Fraudology. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to this week's Thursday episode of the Fraudology podcast, where we dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of an e-commerce fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick. Well, we've made it to mid-August. I know about half of you are probably on holiday or vacation, and I hope that you are thoroughly enjoying it and resting and relaxing. And the other half of us are working through August, which to me, this has been the busiest August I think I've ever had, which is a great thing for those of us that are self-employed. But at the same time, when it comes to fraud, that also means that there's a lot more fraud and chargebacks and all of that. I actually was talking with someone the other day, not in fraud, but just in overall like small business management. And they asked me if now is a busier time just because there has been so much more fraud in the world and and scams and schemes and all of that. And I just kind of off the cuff said, I think it's kind of like being a firefighter. Like you don't necessarily want anyone's home to burn, but at the same time, like you want to put out fires. And that's kind of how I feel, right? I don't want any company to have to call me and say, oh my gosh, we're on the third month of the ECMPs, or we learned about what's coming up in April and with the visa rules and regs on chargeback changes. And we're worried that that's going to really hinder us from being able to stop so much of this first party fraud and everything. And it's just going to encourage more. How do we get on top of it? Like all of those things. So I am so grateful and blessed to be busy and have some speaking opportunities coming up soon. I'm going to be in San Francisco on September 15th for a meetup with Ravlin. So definitely let me know if that's something that you can attend. It's in San Francisco on Thursday, September 15th. That would be so fun to see as many of you as possible. And I'll be in a couple other places too. As I confirm them, I will let you guys know. But on today's episode, I wanted to just provide a couple of updates from previous episodes. One is some clarification and an update on Visa's latest chargeback rule change announcement for April of 2023. I already just mentioned those changes a minute ago. There's more specifics around the episode 110 that I did back in June. Yes, it was back in June and I thought I wrote down the date and I didn't, but you can find it fairly easily. And then also a listener reached out after hearing me talk about the latest escalation in refund fraud tactics on episode 116. That episode was called New Online Fraud Methods to Be Aware of from July 27th. And so I wanted to provide some of their thoughts and insights. I learned something new from them and I'm so appreciative. So this is, to me, this is like a two-way street, right? It's not just me talking out. I learned something new from you guys all the time. And that's one reason why I love this industry because it's changing often and rapidly and we get to learn from each other so much. And then the news, like kind of back and forth on a couple of the news stories I was going to share. There's the CFPB in the U.S. announced that they are investigating Goldman Sachs and the Apple Pay card for child are handling chargebacks and refunds and other disputes. And I'm keeping an eye on it. There's not as much news and information about it as I hoped as I started to dig into it. So I think they have a fairly good idea of what's going on and what the cardholders are claiming and 
what the investigation is, but I want to wait for a little more information to come up before I deep dive and, and certainly before I provide any advice or guidance on what to do because of it or if there is anything that can be done. But then the story caught my eye. The headline was MasterCard faces retailer backlash over buy now, pay later. And this is something I had heard whisperings or rumblings or whatever we want to call it from some very large retailers that have the privilege of getting to learn about new programs or new rule changes from the card brands before they're ever publicly announced. So I knew this was coming. I hoped that they would make some changes to it before it rolled out. Doesn't sound like they did. So basically, MasterCard's rolling out buy now, pay later across all retails. And it might sound really good at first, but merchants are going to have to pay significantly higher fees without knowing or controlling who is offered this payment option. So there's a lot more detail to that, and I will go into to it in just a few minutes. Even though it's not technically a fraud issue, payments and fraud in the online world are so closely related. And a lot of times if a online company doesn't have a payments department, kind of defaults to the fraud department to quasi manage that. It's also just good, I think, to know overall what's coming. So when you're talking to your leadership and your executives, especially just after this past episode with Robert Capps on, you know, talking through ways to set up a business case and ways to explain fraud to your leadership and explain the impact and the possibilities that it could happen if one path is chosen versus the other in so many different business decisions that have to be made. If you did not listen to that episode, I highly recommend it. I have to say Robert's whole point about why fraud fighters are so bad at communicating with other departments actually kind of blew my mind. I ended up thinking about it for several days later. And I think he's so accurate that I am summarizing here, so I'm not going to do as good as he did. So go back and listen if you haven't. But Essentially, he was saying that we rely so heavily on our intuition and our gut, but that is hard to communicate to leaders who want data and proof. And so we need to kind of transition that intuition and gut into more facts and data to be able to support those strong intuitions that we have. I just hadn't thought of it that way. So I really appreciate that. And that's one of the many reasons I really enjoy having him on and other friends in fraud because everybody thinks about things differently and we can learn from everyone's perspective. Next Tuesday, Frank on Fraud, or also known as Frank McKenna, will be on the episode to talk about credit washing and check fraud. Both of those are increasing, like they're skyrocketing right now. And I've been so confused on why check fraud is becoming such a big deal and so much so that there are stories all over the place, all over the U.S. especially, about postal workers being attacked at gunpoint and violently beat up for the mail and for the mail keys that go to the P.O. boxes to open up all of the P.O. boxes to steal checks out of people's mail. It's getting really out of hand. And so I sat down to talk with Frank about that, or Frank really sat down to talk with me about that. And we just had that interview. And I have to say, as always, it was riveting and really interesting. And I love the way Frank is able to break down complex fraud issues that maybe we don't always see every day in e-commerce or online, but are being experienced by lenders and banks and financial institutions and fintechs where either the lines are all getting blurry on that, right? It's no longer that banking fraud is in one category and 
commerce is in another. There's a lot of overlap in what's being experienced and what's being seen. And so even if you're not experiencing those things now, I think it's always good to know about them. Whether you change jobs or your company adds another business model or service, you just never know. So it's always good to just be aware of what's possible. Okay, so I still haven't heard from anyone at Visa since uh, releasing the episode on July. Oh, see, I did write it down. I just wrote it down on the other side of the paper on July 7th, which is about a month ago. If I haven't said it, I think I've already said it twice, but I'll say it again. Episode 110 already several hundred, if not people have listened to it, but you really encourage everyone to because I think these rule changes are being built and being called something different than what I think is going to be the outcome. And I'm not the only one that thinks that as, you know, we break down what really is happening and what really will happen once these rule changes from Visa go into effect in April 2023. And as I said on that episode, I know that April 2023 sounds so far away. And if you work for a company that is has a high spike in the holiday season and in Q4, you're not thinking about anything but getting ready for that. But these changes, there's a reason why they announced them earlier than they ever do. I mean, their reason for announcing them is a little different than what I would think my reason would be, but because they would love for everyone to implement their or insight product, which that implementation is a pretty hefty lift from what I understand from people who have signed up for it and enrolled in it. It's a big implementation. In some cases, a lot of merchants don't have the data handy that's needed for that. So it's just a big lift. And that's why there's so much time. And also, it does give us time to be able to try to advocate for something different. If you also believe, like I do, that this could greatly increase the amount of first party fraud allowed, the amount of money that e-commerce companies lose to first party fraud. So anyway, I'm going to try not to get into all the details because then that's going to make this episode like three hours. But I provided a deep dive of what was put out by Visa and then my interpretation of it and what I think we need to be asking and thinking about and doing on that previous episode. I was nervous to put that episode out. I know that a lot of people don't speak out against the card brands in part because they don't want their business to be impacted or, you know, a lot of the nonprofit trade associations that are within payments and fraud. And I have nothing but high respect for their missions and what their charters are. But a lot of them, are, if not all of them, have the card brands as members. And that allows the card brands to have some impact and input on the messaging that's brought out and on advocacy efforts. So I guess because I'm an independent voice, I felt like, well, I mean, why not me? I guess it needs to be me. And I didn't want to do it, but I felt like I needed to because I was getting so many questions about it. And I was like, well, at least if I put this on an episode, I can point people there. But I was nervous. I thought for sure I would hear from them at some point. I did so much research on the 4th of July for that episode and just really like spending time figuring out the outline and how to say things and all that. But I was pretty confident that everything was accurate. But the fact that nobody's reached out since then, and I know for a fact that people at Visa have listened to it, I won't share how I know that. But I know that I would assume that if I got anything really wrong on that episode or anything even kind of wrong, I would have been contacted to correct or remove it. So I think it's safe to say that my interpretations are at least not inaccurate. But I'm hearing, so I don't really have any updates directly from Visa, but I promised you guys to keep you in the loop as I heard anything else. So I've heard from a small handful of huge brands 
who have their own reps at Visa. And really those, the biggest brands in the world are the ones that have their own rep at Visa and or MasterCard. I think more merchants have reps with Amex and Discover, but those aren't responsible for as big a volume, especially in the US as well as honestly internationally. So I've heard from these brands that have met with their Visa reps so far since this announcement that like what they're being told when they ask questions that I rose in the episode. So I think it's worth noting it, that in most cases, enterprise merchants feel like they're being pressured to into an, being enrolled or enrolling into Order Insight. They feel like they're being told that that's the only way to reduce friendly fraud chargebacks. And as I mentioned on that episode, the issuer coverage on Order Insight is very small. And so one merchant told me it's only 10% of uh, their chargeback volume is even qualifying for Order Insight. And out of that, the only 25% of the 10%, so like two and a half percent of all chargebacks are actually being deflected through this program. And I know that Visa's hope is that as more merchants enroll and it gives them chargeback liability shift on the issuers, that more issuers will enroll. It's similar to what they did to kind of create a tipping point for 3D Secure. But right now it's not there. So and there's they're not being provided any other alternatives. And verified sales reps from Verify have been taking this opportunity right after the announcement to reach out to everyone to let them know that if they want to prepare for the new rule changes that they need to enroll in order insight and as i've said before it's a pretty expensive program and it's hard to say how much it will really save you so when at least one merchant asks out the likelihood of winning or reversing first party fraud or friendly fraud chargebacks with compelling evidence to dotto after april of 2023 visa is kind of implying blame on the issuers so a little bit going back, Visa announced compelling evidence 3.0. That's what's going to take effect in April. Basically, they're saying that the only way for an e-commerce merchant or marketplace or anyone who is processing transactions in a card not present environment, the only way to truly win or have that chargeback reversed in your favor is to have two previous transactions on that same credit card with no chargebacks made on either the same device or IP within the last 120 days. That 120 days piece is what's really throwing merchants off because, well, again, like I hesitate, how much more do I go into? Because I went into this on the other episode, but there's a lot of e-commerce companies. I mean, think about like event ticketing and travel. And I mean, how many e-commerce company or even retailers and clothing and all that, how many retailers do you shop with at least three times in a four month period? And if you already shopped with them twice before, why wouldn't you just contact their customer service or know how to resolve it or know their policies and not issue a chargeback? Typically, friendly fraud chargebacks are on new accounts. Also, as I mentioned on that episode, if I were to make one purchase to an online retailer on my laptop, on my home Wi-Fi, and then another one on my mobile out on mobile Wi-Fi, those aren't going to be on the same device or IP, but yet I made them both on the same card, on the same account, et cetera. So anyway, unless you're like a food delivery company or one of the bigger retailers where everybody orders stuff from them a few times a month, it's hard to know the use cases of how many merchants are going to qualify for that. So Visa didn't exactly outlaw compelling evidence to auto, which is everything you can submit now. 
on fraud chargebacks that say that prove that the cardholder made the purchase. So it's past transactions on that card back a few years or whatever it is, and it's not a specific count and all of that. Or it's a picture from Facebook showing that they went on that vacation or they're carrying that luxury goods handbag by a designer or whatever the thing is that they're claiming they didn't purchase. Again, these are only on fraud chargeback reason codes, but we know because there is no accountability to issuers on reason codes and there's really no vetting process or any standards for issuers to issue fraud chargebacks since 2011, that's the biggest bucket and that's the biggest bucket for loss. So, you know, this is a real, real challenge. And, you know, I was just talking to another a merchant the other day who said, do you think that more merchants are going to go to the chargeback guarantee models by fraud providers because of these rule changes? And I was like, well, maybe, but we're already seeing some of those providers not offer chargeback guarantee anymore. And also a lot of those providers, they're relying on the ability to dispute those transactions. And remember, these are not transactions of people whose credit card was truly stolen. These are transactions of people who the merchants can prove. No, the person who owns that credit card actually made that purchase because they've already bought something on their card, you know, a year before to the same address and the same phone number and same everything. I can prove that they got it. They signed for it. They all these different pieces. So that's why compelling evidence was created. So Visa isn't necessarily saying that you can't submit the previous evidence, that you can't just keep submitting the same evidence that you're submitting now. However, they're saying the only way you're guaranteed to win is to provide, you know, this proof within 120 days, the compelling evidence 3.0. So their line to merchants is that they can still send 2.0 compelling evidence to dispute first party fraud chargebacks, which sounds really great on the surface. But they are not saying that merchants will win or receive chargeback reversals with 2.0 like they are now. And the chargeback process is self-governed with the issuers having the final decision. Final decision with an asterisk because merchants can pursue arbitration. However, there are some some extra, not liability, but there's extra there's a chance that you may have to pay higher fees if that chargeback isn't found in your favor. So oftentimes merchants won't pursue arbitration. However, I if I were Visa, I'd be staffing up on a lot more arbitration analysts right now because I know several companies who have pretty robust chargeback processes who have high AOVs who have made the decision that if they start to see compelling evidence to not be accepted by issuers, they're just going to arbitrate everything. So a non, an impartial third party, impartial, uh, it's with the card brand, but they're not the issuer or the merchant or the acquirer. So, you know, somebody else is looking at it just based on the facts, but it's hard to know what they're going to say, right? Are they going to say, well, you don't have compelling evidence 3.0, so you're not guaranteed a liability? And again, we're all just kind of guessing on what's going to happen. But when you've been in this industry, as long as some of us have, you, you get pretty good at knowing exactly what's going to happen. And fraud prevention and fraud strategy is all about cause and effect. So we're pretty good at it. And I would love to be wrong about this. I really do hope that after April that merchants can still win at the exact same rate that they're winning now with compelling evidence 2.0. I hope that that's the case. I just don't understand why there'd be this much push to put out 3.0 if issuers were really going to do anything or, or if issuers were going to keep accepting the same documentation. It just doesn't make a lot of sense to me. 
But I'm sharing this because I promised to share any updates. And so if you're a merchant and you find yourself in a conversation with Visa or Verify or anyone else about this, I think you should know how to understand what they're saying and how to kind of decipher it. I was trying to think of a real life example of what this would be like because it's different. I've never seen Visa add a new rule for liability, but not take away the old rule. And I think I have some probably cynical thoughts on why, but I think that's an easy fallback. Well, we didn't take it all the way, so you still have an option, but will we really? It's hard to know, but I just don't, I don't see that happening. So I was asking my husband, like, what would, what would be a similar, what he came up with is kind of U.S. specific, so I apologize to my international listeners, but Within the U.S., there's federal, state, and local governments. And in some cases, the federal government will have one rule, but the states and the local you know, municipalities will have another rule. Kind of like COVID restrictions, right? The state might have a rule that everyone has to wear masks indoors or might have had that before. But then a local municipality can say, you know what, we're overriding that. Nope. Or the other way around, right? No masks in the state, but this town is going to have mask requirements indoors. So depending on what authority you're talking to, you may or may not get in trouble. And for the most part, the state or federal authorities will default to the local rules, but not always. And so that's an example of there being two sets of rules and it being just kind of confusing. Or another example, similar but different, is around cannabis and weed or marijuana in the U.S. That's still federally illegal and still federally classified as a schedule. I can't remember what the narcotic schedule is, but in the same category as heroin and cocaine and others. But there are about 20 states within the U.S. who have decided, no, we're going to make it legal. I live in one of those. But because it's federally mandated, those companies, those dispensaries can't have a, a federal, they can't have a bank account. They often have to pay their employees in cash. There's just a lot of things there. So they could still technically be arrested by federal authorities, even though in their state it's legal. So I don't know if that's a stretch or if that helps at all. I was just trying to think of some kind of real world example to explain the fact that they're adding this extra thing, but they're not taking away the other thing. But hard to know. I just wonder if they're not taking away that 2.0 just as kind of cover. I don't know. It's hard to know. So that's that's what I'm hearing from people who are having these conversations. And so if you're going to have one soon, I just wanted to help you kind of declassify it. What can you do about it? Well, before April of 2022, make sure that you're measuring your win rate accurately. You're not measuring your first time wins. You're measuring the first time wins that don't come back with a second time chargeback or a pre-arbitration within the last 30 days. It's kind of crappy that most processors don't actually tell you, oh, you won all of these chargebacks in one report. And that's because there's no action that takes place when you actually win because the issuer just accepts the chargeback. There's nothing that comes back the other way that updates your account. So when I worked with one pretty large client a few years ago, I had the best project manager assigned to me for it. And she created an Excel spreadsheet that just kind of auto-populated it and had some kind of a rule in there where if the status doesn't change to a pre-arb or a second time within 30 days, that's an actual win. That means you actually keep the money. You can also do an audit of your bank account or look at your margin statement for the debits and the credits and all of that. But if you're a big company, that gets really convoluted and detailed really quickly and hard to track. So sometimes that's just better. But if you know your win rate now, you have a baseline. 
I think it's important to educate leadership on upcoming changes and potential impact. Something like currently we're recovering X dollars due to first party fraud, but if only compelling evidence 3.0 is enforced, we're only going to recover Y or this is the amount of money that is in jeopardy. And that's assuming, sorry, I'm flipping my page here. That's assuming that you are responding to those in the absolute best way. I have to say that the majority of merchants that I work with are not. And it's of no fault of your own. Nobody really teaches you how to do it. And honestly, not even every, I mean, most chargeback vendors aren't really responding to them with as much in the way to get as much of a chance to win as possible either. A lot of them, it's a, it's a numbers game. I've talked about that many times before. So do an audit and figure out, you know, hey, maybe let's do some A-B testing and, and try to change up the order of our evidence or some of the verbiage that we're using. I have helped merchants increase their win rates by like 30 to 60%, not even by changing any of the documentation that they provide, just changing the order and the way it's explained and the format of the overall template for each reason code. So there's often room for improvement. The challenge is I've had to start telling a couple of merchants that I worked with or that come to me for that help saying, I can guarantee that this will help you until April. I can't guarantee after April. And that's not why I'm being so vocal about it. It's not, it's a small part of my business. It's fine. That's not why it's, I'm being vocal about it because I don't think it's fair to merchants and my sense of justice is not isolated to people using stolen payment methods or gaming the system. So speaking out against this too. So like I said, I hope I'm wrong, but I just think it's important to understand you know, how to read through and look through all of this. So after April 2023, track the impact on your win rates weekly and then monthly. I would say weekly for the first several months and then monthly. Ensure you're sending the 3.0 compelling evidence. Those two previous transactions on the same card, on the same device or IP within the last 120 days, whenever possible. And when you do send that in, track those and have someone look and make sure that those are being accepted and that you're at least getting reversed for those. And then track your bin numbers. I would be interested for you to know, are some issuers still accepting the 2.0 compelling evidence? Are some of the bigger issuers not and just doing 3.0? Like what? That way you can kind of start to predict what your win rates are going to be ahead of time. And also, if you ever need to reach out to a specific issuer, you know which one. Sardine is now sponsoring Fraudology. And one of the reasons I've been so impressed by Sardine is their founder, Soups Ranjan. You'll hear my full conversation with him in the next few weeks, and you'll get to hear about some of his experiences and his passion for fraud fighting for yourself. But the TLDR, or the high-level summary, is that he started out as a fraud fighter with an engineering and data science background, and he was tasked with quickly identifying a fraud solution for one of the fastest-growing companies in the relatively new and high-risk crypto industry almost a decade ago. But after learning about the available options for online fraud detection, he became frustrated with the existing tools on the market. And as fellow fraud fighters, I think a lot of us know exactly the kind of tools he was frustrated with. The legacy fraud tools that just return a score or a signal or a yes, no, maybe without your team getting to understand all of the aggregated data or the value attributed to each data point that goes into calculating that score or the vendor who won't give you your company's data for your own models and their own user interface was probably an afterthought. And let's be honest, Soup wasn't the only one who's been frustrated by the status quo in fraud technology. 
But not all of us are able to rage quit our jobs, recruit a few of the smartest risk engineers we've ever known, and go build a fraud platform that is truly built by the fraud squad for the fraud squad. A platform for KYC, AML, and payment risk all in one product that lets the client company decide how to best use the massive amounts of data that's available to them. And that's pretty much exactly what Soups did a few years ago. And the result of those efforts has become one of the fastest growing solution providers in fraud that I've seen in many years. And that company is Sardine. To learn more about Sardine or to book a personalized demo, you can go to www.sardine.ai or just click the link at the top of the description for today's episode. to reach out to you first. And as far as asking anyone, what should we be doing? What can we do more, et cetera? I mean, obviously, yes, that is a service I provide in my consultancy. But I've talked to several merchants who will say, well, we talked to Visa and they said that this will be allowed. But then on the issuer side, it's not being allowed. And that's way be- it's even before all of this talk about 3.0, 2.0, et cetera. And the thing is, is that Visa sets the rules, but they're not the ones reviewing them. It's your processor and then it's the issuing bank. They just set the rules and then kind of put their hands up a little bit. I mean, with VRO, with the Visa Online Resolution, they are doing some things to at least ensure that issuers aren't issuing chargebacks that they shouldn't be for like a the, bat, the wrong time period or something like that. Like most chargeback reason codes have a kind of a date that you're allowed to issue a chargeback within 120 days. But that's why, sorry, I just thought of something else. I'm like, huh, what's going to prevent issuers if they see two previous transactions from 120 days from issuing chargebacks on those two within that time frame because they can. Hmm, what's going to prevent that? Because we know that sometimes, you know, those things can happen. But anyway, I'll talk to merchants and they'll say, well, we talked to Visa and they said it was fine. It's, well, they're not the ones that are looking at it. It's the individual issuers and it's your processor. So I always say start with your processor first. Start with someone in the chargeback department and ask them like to review what you're providing. Not all of them are going to be as helpful as some, but that's a start. And then if there are specific issuers, when you look at the bin numbers of the charge and you're like, oh, we're getting a significant amount of these from this issuer, I would first look to see is that percentage of chargeback similar to the percentage of sales you have on that issuer? Because it could just be that issuer is a big one and they're used often. But if you want to contact the individual issuer, then you are able to narrow that down. That is harder to do for merchants. But that's who I would go to and talk to first because the card brands, again, don't have a ton of say or input or oversight into the day to day. Okay, as always, I think that these episodes are going to be like within 30 minutes and I can talk about all these things and I should just, I really should just be picking one topic and sticking to it. But because I promised you three, I'm going to keep going. So on episode 116, which was in July 27th, I talked about three newer fraud trends that merchants were reporting. One of them was an escalated version or just a more complex version of refund fraud that is crippling online merchants, especially because this method is being used for high dollar values, some of them as much as ten dollars to $30,000. And the point of compromise or the point within the process that's vulnerable and being manipulated is out of the merchant's control. So merchants are doing whatever they can to reduce inventory not received claims, or at least the wrong ones, the fraudulent INR claims. They're doing what they can to get a hold of the warehouse and what's being sent to them and 
all of that. Varying levels, right? There are some merchants that haven't started. There are other merchants who are on top of it as much as they possibly can. Obviously, I am about to announce my new refund fraud module in partnership with a solution provider that I'm so excited about. But this, I mean, this vulnerability is, has been thought of in that, but that's this is separate from that. But basically... What's happening is that fraudsters are gaining access to employee logins at carriers, so shipping carriers. Fill in the blank of the three and four letter, I guess one is five letter shipping carriers. A lot of them are international. A lot of this is happening, especially in the U.S. as well as the U.K. and Germany and France. That's where I've seen these posted about the most. Maybe Spain? No, mostly Germany, France. I'm thinking of the flags that I see most often on the post and Telegram. So basically, they gain control or they gain access to employee logins through account takeover on the carrier side, and it allows them to change the final status on a tracking number from delivered to lost in transit or returned to sender. And that allows the customer, in quotation marks, to contact customer service and claim that that item didn't arrive. And when customer service looks up the status in the carrier's website for that tracking number, it'll just say that the final status is, you know, that the package was lost in transit or it was returned back to the sender. So usually, I mean, those are seen as, okay, that's our fault, so we'll credit you back. Because, of course, if a package en route from the merchant to the customer gets lost in transit or is returned to sender and those things happen, then usually, you know, the merchant's going to take care of it, right? It's not the customer's fault and it's good customer service. It impacts your brand if you don't do that and all these other things. But in this case, the items were delivered. It's just that a bad actor was able to go in and manipulate the carrier's website and the carrier's system by accessing an employee's login and having employee access and permissions to change those tracking numbers. And it's only like $35 per tracking number, or you can buy a login for $900. So that also tells me that they're not worried about those logins going out being in short supply at all, which is a whole other set of problems. And I am familiar with probably what's happening to access those, but that kind of goes to my next point. This has been brought to the carrier's attention many times, especially the one carrier that we started to see it on first two months ago. These have been brought to these carrier's attention by some significantly big brands that have very large accounts with these carriers. And the merchant has included, actually the merchants have included examples of it, you know, happening in their system, as well as screenshots of the advertisements and claims on Telegram saying, hey, we have X, you know, this carrier's employee logins and we're able to do this, this and this. Unfortunately, merchants did not feel like there was any care or efforts or interest in taking action against this. And that was very frustrating. But what I wanted to share on this episode and the update is that I didn't have a name for this or anything to compare it to at the time. I just kind of was like something where another party that a merchant depends on for business is compromised, but the merchant is taking the full loss. And one of my favorite listeners, and she's been a guest at least once, and I hope soon again, Shoshana Marini. She's one of the co-authors of the Practical Fraud Prevention book by O'Reilly. If you haven't gotten that yet, I highly recommend it. Everyone who has bought it has just raved about it, myself included. But so anyway, Shoshana said that this was very similar to supply chain attacks in cybersecurity. And I'm not as familiar with the exact attacks methods in cybersecurity because I'm so focused on fraud. So anyway, I looked it up, but then she also explained that supply chain attacks, you know, basically the main target is hard or impossible to breach, but their vendors and partners up or downstream are less secure. 
We One of the biggest examples of this is the Target breach in 2013. It wasn't actually Target that was breached. It wasn't, and none of the card numbers that were exposed were from online. I've talked about that before. They were all card numbers that were used in person. But I specifically remember this is, you know, mid to late November. And so when it came out anyways, it was right before the holiday season. It greatly impacted Target's sales as well as just a lot of issues for shopping. And there were a lot more credit cards to get because those were busy times. I think it was after Black Friday, Cyber Monday. So there were a lot of credit card numbers in there is what I'm saying. Probably even more than usual. But, you know, Target itself wasn't breached at all. They had great security. No bad actors were able to get into their systems. But there was an HBAC vendor that just happened to have access to all of the POS data and all the card numbers, like somewhere in their access levels, and they were compromised, thus exposing Target. So another recent example actually came from actually my podcast producer. Shout out to Lucas Walker, who I adore. But he you know, texted and said, hey, have you seen this hack on OCS. And I didn't know what OCS was, but he's in Canada. So this explains why he would know about it. OCS is the Ontario Cannabis Store. And it's a large cannabis retailer in Canada. And they just recently experienced a compromise, not directly, but one of their logistics partners was the point of compromise. And even though those most impacted, the data and the brand reputation is impacting OCS in the Ontario Cannabis Store. Looks like it's also impacting a lot of logistics as far as distribution and getting more product to their stores, et cetera, et cetera. So they have a huge impact. So I think it's a really good parallel to what's happening in refund fraud with bad actors obtaining the logins for different shipping carriers. So I'm now assigning this term to this kind of fraud, and I'm going to be calling it supply chain fraud attacks. I'm not necessarily expecting this to be adopted by the industry, but it is helpful to us to have terms for specific methods, especially ones that will continue and grow and morph because they were, this being one of them. You know, there's been other examples too. Payment methods have employee credentials that have been exposed or stolen or sold, allowing advanced phishing attacks and filing decisions on disputes with merchants and all these other things. And so there are other impacts for sure. It is important to note that this specific or the particular supply chain fraud attack that leveraged employee logins at carriers isn't just impacting merchants and their call centers. It's also being used in disputes. So alternative payment methods, especially those with consumer-friendly rules, we're probably all thinking of the same ones, but I don't name names. So, and if I haven't said it, I haven't said it. But chargebacks, though, not as common because they take too long. So a lot of it is more in the disputes with alternative payment methods than it is for chargebacks. But in some cases, if the customer in quotation marks can't get a refund through customer service or they know that that will be difficult or challenging, they'll pay with an alternative payment method first. So they know, well, all I have to do is tell the payment method that I didn't get my item send them the tracking number, they'll see the final destiny or the final status as lost in transit or return to sender. So I won't have to pay for it. And that's often what's happening. I do know of a couple of merchants who have made a concerted effort to educate these alternative payment methods on these scams and to really very clearly in their dispute documentation lay out the scam and then show as much proof as they can that this was a situation where the delivery status was manipulated for the pure fact of winning a dispute. It doesn't always work, but I know of at least two merchants that have started to bring every single one that has been lost to the attention of their account rep and say, 
hey, this one was lost for 15000 This one was lost for 12000 And look, we can prove that they manipulated the system of the carrier so that you would think that it was our fault. So being very, you know, over-communicative about that can be helpful. But be sure to educate your disputes teams on this tactic and how to explain it in response documents. Use red arrows and bold when you need to. Have them look at the full history on the tracking number, not just the final status. Communicate this up to your leadership as a potential risk. This is something that is impacting physical goods retailers by quite a lot, especially the ones that have more processes or aren't just issuing refunds to whoever says that the item wasn't received. Make sure that they're aware of these impacts and they may be able to pull some strings. I know of at least one merchant that spoke to their legal department to say, hey, does this classify as a breach? If bad actors are able to get the employee login of an employee that works at the carrier and they're able to do this, is that constitute a breach for us? And I guess there's some protections within the contract that way. I don't think the legal department said yes. I don't remember. I actually haven't been able to circle back with that merchant to find out what they said, but I thought that was interesting. As well as some companies may need to decide, is it worth us taking this alternative payment method? How much good sales are we getting to bad? And would those convert to credit cards if we just went credit card? It's going to be really ironic seeing as what I'm talking about next, but <laughs> that's one thing. And over-communicate with your shipping partners and say, hey, this is happening. And if you have screenshots that prove that these are being sold and offered on third-party forums and others, that can help your case. So lastly, and I know this is, as usual, my Thursday episodes are not 30 minutes. And I apologize, but I hope that you guys don't mind. If you really do mind about time, I really want to hear about it. And we are going to be sending out a survey soon. I will be begging you guys to fill it out to help me and my team really know how to make fraudology better in a lot of ways. And one of them will be, how long do you want your episodes? Because I'm just guessing over here. So if you come back and say you want 20, 30 minute episodes, I'm just going to do one topic at a time or one topic per episode. And maybe that's okay. Maybe that's good for me and my time too. But anyway. Here's the last thing, and this is kind of the new news. This is more payments and fraud related, as I mentioned before, but since a lot of people in fraud are often quasi-responsible for payments or you work, you know, especially if there's not official payments department within your organization or you work closely with payments, it's important to know about this. If you don't have a payments department that has brought this up to your leadership, this will be something that you'll also want to make a business case for and at least tell your leadership and your management because it can have some bigger impacts and they may need to get involved to advocate for the company as a whole, depending on a lot of factors about your business and how you feel about it. So the, you know, the article itself was on Digital Commerce 360 and the title is MasterCard Faces Retailer Backlash Over Buy Now Pay Later. So the basic highlights are that MasterCard will be offering a Buy Now Pay Later option to all MasterCard cardholders and all merchants will be automatically enrolled. There is an option to opt out, but it's not really clear on how to do that yet. So this allows customers to pay in four payments with no interest versus accruing interest after the first billing cycle. It'll probably be most popular on merchants that have high dollar average order value, but because it's going to all merchants, there are some categories of companies that are already speaking out against this because like fast food and gas, for example, and gasoline and petrol, like we're not going to offer four paint. Like, please, no. 
don't offer four payments for somebody's takeout because what if they don't like it? Then it's going to come back to us, et cetera. So all merchants are auto-enrolled to accept it. On all MasterCard buy now, pay later transactions, the inter- the additional fee on top of interchange, this is how I understand it. Now, if anyone wants to correct me on this, I will gladly put out a correction. But the way I understand it, the way I've read it, as well as what other people have said, is that this 3% or 300 basis points is on top of the interchange for that specific issuer. So that's something to clarify with your acquirer. But that's, you know, what I've been hearing to all merchants. And they can't or won't be negotiated. Like that fee is not going to change. It's going to be 3% for everyone, no matter how big your business is. So here are the potential issues for merchants and retailers. In case you haven't already thought of these. (laughs) Many of them have exclusivity deals with traditional buy now, pay laters. There's no news on how the traditional BNPLs will respond to this, but retailers could be in breach of their exclusivity, even if it's not them who enrolled in the MasterCard BNPL program. So that can cause some issues, as well as the merchant has no insight or control over who's offered this option. Because some merchants who have BNPL options, you know, traditional ones, they may have dynamic checkout pages with different or alternative payment options offered. Depending on the size of the order, the geography of the customer, if that customer has order history before, etc. So they might offer different payment methods depending on those factors to different customers. And as far as we know, this will be available to any and all MasterCard cardholders. It's hard to know if MasterCard's gonna put this on the checkout page for retailers or if after a cardholder makes a purchase on their MasterCard, if then the issuer will come back and say, you have the ability to make the four equal payments with no interest if you apply for MasterCard by affiliator or whatever that's going to be. And so that way, we're not sure how that's going to work yet. That hasn't been clear, at least in what I can find. I do know that Apple Pay Later, which is Apple's buy now pay later solution, is also on MasterCard's rails. So I'm, it's not 100% clear to me if it's either or either or both combined or if everything for MasterCard's buy now pay later includes for Apple Pay buy now later and or yeah, buy now, pay later. And there's going to be an extra 3% for Apple Pay later. I have no idea on that. I just know that they're going on MasterCard's rails too. And MasterCard sees that as an opportunity. But I don't know if they're going to compete against each other or if it's going to be bucketed as the same thing. So there are some details that I haven't been able to track down yet. But so here are some other issues. It appears that the only way a merchant would know who signed up for MasterCard buy now, pay later would be on your monthly detailed statement in the interchange assessment section. So it would just show which orders have that extra 3%. I don't think that the merchant's gonna have insight on, oh, okay, so we're actually getting more customers and more sales because of this or anything like that. So I don't know where the transparency begins or ends on that, but seems like MasterCard is kind of coming from on high and saying, okay, this is happening. You don't get a choice on how much it is. You don't really get a choice on if you're going to sign up or not. You can get yourself out of it. You know, we're going to make that opting out is always going to be less people that are involved than when it's opt-in, right? We just, we know that from being in e-commerce and technology for sure. So while 3% may be similar to what merchants pay on traditional buy now, pay later services, not all merchants provide this payment option. In the article, it says that all retailers in the Digital Commerce 360 top 1,000, so the top 1,000 internet companies, pretty much all of them except Visa and MasterCard, of course, but only 45.8% provide a BNPL choice and option, but now they're all automatically enrolled. I also think it's really interesting that MasterCard tried to roll out an installment program several months ago and that 
didn't go well when it was opt-in. Only two retailers in that top 1,000 by Digital Commerce 360 opted into MasterCard's installment service when it was optional. And it was a little bit of a different system, but still, it just kind of shows, okay, well, no wonder they're making it not mandatory, but they're applying it to everyone and you have to make a choice. I will also say that I don't know how it works, but I think, I mean, if somebody, yeah, if someone uses one of the more traditional buy now, pay laters, if a consumer uses a traditional buy now, pay later, the merchant might pay around 3% for that transaction, but they're not paying interchange in addition to that. So that piece will be important once we all get clarification on that. And again, MasterCard says that merchants can opt out. And I know that fast food companies and gasoline or petrol companies are at least the trade associations that their members of have recommended that opt out. I know other merchants that at least the ones that have been made aware of this in advance have already decided they want to opt out. But here are some questions that I would suggest you ask when you're talked to about this, if you're talked to about this, if you have a MasterCard rep, if you're big enough, is I really am curious about the chargeback liability shift to merchants because traditional buy now, pay laters, that's how they were able to get in the door. That's how they were able to get the exclusivity deals was by saying it when you went in, if you receive fraud chargebacks on these buy now, pay later transactions, we will take that on. I've mentioned before that there are a couple of them and especially one in particular that keeps kind of moving the goalposts on those on that liability but that is something that's attractive to merchants for this newer payment option now that's not the case and don't forget that if somebody makes four payments on a buy now pay later transaction and then they file a chargeback that's four chargebacks that's not just one so that's another issue but again i have no idea i just it's not said in any of the articles i can find that they're offering chargeback liability with it so i would assume that that means that they're not but that's an important question to know might be interesting to ask your legal department is this fair or legal for mastercard to try to take over the buy now pay later market with the advantage of all retailers accepting their credit card and then auto enrolling all merchants is this something that they can auto enroll you in and they're not saying that you have to, but they're making it an extra step to get out of it. And it's kind of that same kind of thing I was talking about with Visa. Like it's kind of in the gray zone there. At least they're not making it mandatory and there's no opt out. But still, we all know that less people opt out because they don't know about it or whatever the reasons are. It's extra steps. It's hard to know who has who within the company has the authority to request that. And blah, it goes on and on. My next question, how can merchants opt out? Will the rest of the business want and will the rest of the business want to opt out. So I think my concern would be, will the other parts of the business, whether it's sales or marketing or operations or, well, probably not operations as much, but business development, et cetera, if they're going to say, no, we want as many options as possible, like we don't want to opt out. What if this will open up possibility of more sales or more customer acquisition. So I think it's important to communicate the extra fees and some of those risks up through your management and your leadership for why it's a good idea, why it might be risky, and then allow them to make that decision. But it's important for them to have all the facts. And we know that whenever a new option is presented, especially by people in sales, they may not share all those details with other parts of the business. Or if they do, other parts of the business are not going to understand chargeback liability or interchange or anything like that. So this is another opportunity for you to put together a case, do some research, talk with your acquirer. They should have more information on this, on the specifics, and go to your business and say, hey, I don't know if you're aware or not, but MasterCard is in posing this buy now, pay later option on all merchants. And 
we do have the option to opt out, but I went ahead and already did, you know, an analysis and looking at the positives and the negatives on this, you know, with as much information as I have and just kind of wanted to help prepare you when it's time to make the right decision or the right decision for our business. So that is what I would suggest doing with that news and information. So as per usual, this episode is almost an hour. I apologize, but I also really hope that you guys appreciate all the work and information I share on these. I mean, it sure sounds like you do, so I keep doing it. It's hard for me as somebody who's been in fraud for so long to not care so much about the details because we know that's where the devil lives and that's where the fraud is too, or the bigger expenses to our business. And, you know, I think it's a really interesting time to see these card brands making some pretty risky decisions, but I think it's with the thought that there's not a good alternative and that retailers will have often just kind of sucked up any change and, and gone along with it. And so it's just it's interesting to me as somebody who has studied this industry for so long and I'm bilingual, so to speak, in fraud and payments. So I see that full picture and I think that can be very helpful as well. All right, guys, I'm going to go. I, as always, appreciate you listening and love to hear your thoughts. And I look forward to speaking with you more next week. again to Sardine for sponsoring this episode of Fraudology and for supporting information sharing and collaboration across the fraud fighter ecosystem. You can learn more about the team and their mission at Sardine via the link in today's episode description.